No Exit with Nicholas Corice contains explicit language and content. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. With an untouched beer still sitting in front of him, the guy from the metal music website held the crinkled paper in his hand and started to look a little fidgety. Jorn had been answering polite questions about his current musical projects, and he was starting to figure that the guy who was doing the questioning was probably about half his age. In fact, he could have even been born the same year his first EP with the black metal band Destination Avgrund hit the shelves in a small Norwegian town six hours outside of Oslo 23 years ago. The same 7-inch EP printed on cheap factory vinyl that cost him and his former bandmates more money to make than it ever generated in those first 10 years of its existence, and then ballooned in sales only within the past few years. The same one that had started more trouble and more chaos in his life and the lives of others than anyone could have possibly anticipated. And right now, there was a young guy from a fairly well-known online metal community with a nervous shake telling him how that same EP was amazing, legendary, and even spellbinding. Of course, it wasn't uncommon for interviewers and fans to become uncomfortable and intimidated around him, and the history of the black metal band as controversial as Destination Avgrund. But that wasn't why the guy was nervous. He was nervous because he was getting ready to ask the one question that had been buzzing in the metal community since the announcement of the official Destination Avgrund reunion last month on their website. Of course he wasn't going to have the flagship interview about that announcement without having to address the one shitty thing he really didn't want to talk about. The only thing that would be on the mind of every person who ever wore a faded Destination t-shirt, and there was going to be no avoiding it. So, said the guy, peeling long hair out of his face, if I may ask, uh, I just wanted to know what you think the odds are of uh, missing lead singer Kekavolt joining up for this tour, <laughs> he said, with a nervous laugh in his breath. Jorn finished off the rest of his beer and dropped the cup on the table with a hollow clink. He sighed through his nose and the mood became tense. Everyone in the room was looking at him like he was a tiger in a cage and was getting teased with raw meat. The last time I saw Kekavolt, said Jorn, leaning up against the table, now closer to the sweating interviewer. He was walking barefoot in the desert of the American Southwest with a group of freaks and drug addicts. He had been dancing around all afternoon with a dead crow in his hands, which he said contained the vessel of a demon he talked to or some shit, I don't remember. All I know is that it stank to all hell and it was covered in flies and these types of things were not out of the ordinary for him. The first thing Kekavolt bought with his advance from the Sodom Escrisas album was a coffin and I along with three other people personally watched him take a large dose of acid, chase it with a bottle of whiskey and then wrap himself in a blanket and lay inside that coffin for hours on end. Kekovalt did strange, destructive things all of the time. And if he would have returned to the bus that night, we could have continued that tour. We could have finished it up and myself and the rest of the band and our record label would not have to be in debt to pay for the losses that it racked up well into the next two decades. I know the story, 
You know the story. Everyone knows the story. Whole fucking books have been written about it. Regular books, conspiracy books, stupid books, everything. Brian Ragginson wrote a whole account of it three years before he died. I'm sure you have a copy of it on your bookshelf at home. And I've given my own thoughts on it several times. And I don't want to get into it again. But I'll say that even Brian acknowledges what he thinks happened is speculation on his part. So I will put it simply. I am not going to hold my breath for him to turn up anytime soon. The Arizona State Police, the FBI, and even some investigators from Norway have looked up and down from him and have constantly turned up empty-handed. The accounts from the people he surrounded himself with at the time are not accurate, including mine to some degree. So much was going on at that time. Of course I want Kekavalt to turn up somewhere. Of course I want him to be on stage with us if that is what he wants. But I want to be completely honest with the fans and the fans of Kekavolt when I say I do not think that will happen. It's been 20 years. Jorn scanned the room with his eyes. He did not feel a sense of disappointment from the people listening, but his words were sobering. And that was it. It was not brought up again in any other fashion to his surprise. Minor things were discussed here and there, but the big question of the night had been settled. At least for now. At least until the next interview. And probably every interview he would ever give for the rest of his life on the same tired subject over and over again. Eventually, the equipment was packed up. Jorn shook everyone's hands and signed things for anyone who wanted it. His interviewer stood back for a bit and watched as Jorn chatted with the crew. He could tell the guy had just one more question chambered up. He had sensed it for a while now. When Jorn gathered his things and finished the last bit of his fourth beer, the guy stood near him. Here it comes, he thought. Can I ask you something off record? Jorn had heard this before in other places, and it rarely meant things would truly be off record. Jorn said, all right, and it came. Are you familiar with the resurrection theory? With his back turned, Jorn pretended to dig in his backpack for something. He rolled his eyes, then faced the man. Yes, I know it. And, he said, he didn't like to get salty with fans, and especially with the press. They would have a tendency to chew you up on social media at any slight misgiving. Sometimes you just couldn't help it, though, especially with these kinds of questions. The guy fought through the awkwardness and kept talking. It's coming up on the 23-year mark, the same reference in the Black from the Dam song, you know. Is it a coincidence that a reunion tour is happening at the same time, or, you know, I'm just kind of asking? No, Jorn said, tossing his pack over his shoulder. Off the record, it's called marketing. The guy thought he was being standoffish until Jorn smiled, and then he laughed. It wasn't the answer the guy wanted, but it did get Jorn off the hook for the moment. It also gave this guy a story he could tell at a party. Jorn shook his hand and said goodbye. The interview was over. Since that interview, it had been three steady months of planning and PR for the reunion. Now Jorn was waiting in the pickup zone at the airport after a trip to Oslo. It was there that he and the other remaining bandmates held a secret audition for a new singer in the past week. It was the basis Dag's idea to find someone back in the old home country. 
many bands that have sprung up in Oslo since their initial heyday in the late 80s. True, a lot of them sounded like knockoffs of knockoffs, at least in Jorn's mind, but Dag's suggestion to look where it first started felt right. Jorn had a lot to consider with what he and the other bandmates had just seen in terms of talent this past week, and it would be a while before the band and the label would reach a final, unanimous decision. Despite all that, there was a different feeling he had right now, and it was something in this airport. He usually had a sense of when he was being watched or gawked at. Jorn was far off from being a superstar, or even a B-level star for that matter, but every once in a while, someone would crawl out from the crowds and try to talk to him. He always knew it before it happened, that same self-conscious feeling. As he looked around the terminal, standing by the window with his hands in his faded black jeans, he didn't seem to be arousing anyone's actual attention. And just when Jorn decided to ignore the strange feeling, he felt a tap on his shoulder. He turned around, looked down, and saw a teenaged kid in a black hoodie covering his eyes, whose lips were slathered in black lipstick. He held out a crumpled paper bag for Jorn to take. Jorn reached out and took it as a pure reaction, without thinking, and would later recall he thought the kid was handing him something he dropped. The kid's hand stayed on his as he took it, and then he leaned into Jorn's ear and said, Black church outside Moab, Utah, in the southern desert, October 31st, midnight. The kid let go of his hand and walked away, quickly, into the airport terminal, weaving his way into the crowds. The kid had said it so fast, Jorn almost didn't pick up on all of what he was trying to tell him. Jorn heard a car horn beep, and then he turned his head out into the street. His girlfriend, Tracy, was sitting in the driver's seat of her black SUV, motioning for him to get in. Hey, I've been here for a minute now, she said, as he put his luggage inside the open back hatch. Why do you look so weird? Who are you talking to back there? I don't know, he said. Some weird kid just walked up, whispered a bunch of shit, and wandered off. I have no idea what the fuck it was about. Oh, she said, pulling out into the open road. I guess just a fan, then. What did he give you? Jorn was still looking back at the airport terminal with his head craned as far as it could go in his seat. He said what again, and she asked again. He had forgotten he had been holding the crumpled paper bag still in his hand. He looked at it for a moment, then carefully removed some dirty scotch tape around the edges to peel it open. Inside, he found a severed human finger in a plastic sandwich bag. It had a faded tattoo of an upside-down cross above the knuckle and chipped black nail polish on the fingernail. It looked gray, bloodless, and very old. He let out a slight gasp. What is it? She asked again. Jorn did not answer her in that moment. So, said Schaefer, giving Jorn the side eye with a beer in his hand, have you heard anything about the thing? Schaefer was the new guitarist, handpicked by Jorn himself as rhythm to his lead. So far, he was better than the old rhythm guitarist, Sven Moltesen, in every way musically, personality-wise, and even had a great stage presence. He also probably had enough sense not to shit on a tour bus on a hot day during a long haul, unlike Sven tended to do. Most important, however, Jorn knew he could tell things to Schaefer that he couldn't tell to the other members of the band. For instance, like receiving a rotting finger in a paper bag at an airport almost three months ago. Jorn winced. No, he said. Nothing since that letter in the mail. The one you thought that was written in blood and all that shit, right? Schaefer asked, looking around. 
What Schaefer was referencing here was a letter written in what was indeed most likely to be blood. Yorn himself made it a point not to show up anywhere near a black church in the middle of Utah on Halloween, as instructed by the random kid at the airport. And so, according to this letter, the fact that Yorn did not show up with the dead man's finger at this specific time and place meant the writer of this letter and his cult of buddies could not do a full resurrection of whoever this finger belonged to. Therefore, as such, the body did not rise from the dead as expected, and Yorn was naturally to blame. The letter, with no return address, also demanded that Yorn give the finger back or suffer the consequences, with the word underlined in a smatter of blood. Yorn took a sip of beer and nodded at Schaefer over his glass. The bar was busy tonight, and they were careful about how they talked about this in public. Yes, but, said Yorn, Tracy is still worried. I have a guy I know going through the neighborhood every night to check the house and comb through the neighborhood. I'm really not worried though. I get shit like this all the time. These hardcore fans, they do crazy shit. I once came home to a fucking tombstone sitting on my back porch in Oslo, just right there, out in the fucking open. A bunch of kids cracked it off from a cemetery, dragged it away, and left it on my fucking porch. I swear that happened. Yeah, but, Schaefer said, itching his beard. That's a tombstone. What you got was a fucking, you know, it's different. Besides, this is the age of the internet and all that. Some of these fan groups get crazy. They know where you are at all times and can breathe down your neck if they want to. Shit, Lars told me kids used to wait in the middle of the road for him at the hotels in New York back in the day. And look, far be it for me to tell you what to do, but I, I really think this is uh, the sort of thing you should tell the cops about at some point, don't you think? Jorn shook his head with a mouth of pita crackers and hummus in his mouth. Mm -mm, he said, chewing. No, no fucking cops. Forget it. I've never called the cops for a fucking thing and I'm not going to now. Tracy's been saying that too, but I'm telling you, it's fine. It's just kids. They're going to get bored of this and move on to something else. It's still early on before the tour and people are going to act weird. These fucking Kekevolt maniacs, they're everywhere. Still trying to act like him and do things that he would do to prove that they're hardcore and all that. It's stupid. If I've learned anything doing this kind of shit for 20 plus years, it's that people aren't really that fucking hardcore when it gets right down to it. No one is for that matter. No one could be, or ever should be. Kekavolt fans will act crazy, do dumb shit, and then will calm the fuck down once the tour starts and they can get all their self-destructive bullshit out in the mosh pit. I'm telling you. Schaefer leaned up against the bar with a hand on his bald head, looking at Jorn with a bit of disbelief smeared on his face. Eh, well, if you say so. He said. They both got quiet for the moment until the bartender with the bright, cherry red hair passed them by. Schaefer ordered two shots of whiskey from her. She poured up, put them under her noses, and they clinked their glasses together in cheers. Before Schaefer downed his, he said, Just tell me one thing. You still have it? Jorn looked around, threw a shot back, and hit a shudder. Maybe, he said, stuffing more chips in his mouth. Maybe I threw it away. Maybe I have it next to the fucking popsicles in the freezer. Who knows? Schaefer shook his head, downed a shot, and looked at Jorn. Jorn could feel the question coming on. He could always feel the question coming on. So, and I know you won't like this, but I'm going to ask you anyway because you haven't really said it. Here it comes, thought Jorn. Do you really think it's, you know, his? Jorn didn't look at Schaefer, pretending to be preoccupied. He just gave a slight shrug and mumbled, I don't know.
Later that night, Jorn was halfway through a drunken anecdote in the back of an Uber. The driver endured the stench of beer breath while Jorn talked about some of his more notorious road stories. He was halfway through yet another anecdote when Schaefer started tugging at his leather jacket. He had been trying to get his attention for a moment now, until Jorn finally got irate and said, What? Man, look, said Schaefer, pointing. Your front door is open. The smile fell off Jorn's face. He immediately went out of the car without closing it, and Schaefer followed him, stumbling as he walked. Is Tracy in there? Schaefer asked. No, Jorn said, or I don't know. She said she was going to a friend's house tonight or something. Take my phone and call her. Here. Jorn threw his phone at Schaefer, and Schaefer almost missed it completely. Jorn stood at the edge of the front door and peeked inside. It was trashed. Their stuff was everywhere. He called Tracy's name throughout the house, but there was no answer. Just then, a large blue truck came screeching down the block and right onto Jorn's lawn. Schaefer jumped, almost dropping the phone again. A giant bruised, bloodied man in a cowboy hat and a ripped black t-shirt threw open the door and stepped out with a baseball bat in his hand. Jerry, said Jorn, what the fuck happened? Where is Tracy? Jerry spit blood on the pavement and wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. I don't know, I didn't see her inside and her car is gone, but you got raided, partner. Caught two little dumb shit goth kids tearing up your pad here while I was doing my nightly round. I guess I shouldn't have kicked your door open because it gave those fuckers some hiding time. It goddamn snuck up on me when I was poking around, Jerry said, spitting out more blood. Can't believe that shit. In all my years, those little bastards had some fucking nerve, I'll give them that. They walked me on the head with something fierce, I tell you. Then I turned back and got one of them in the fucking eye with my bat here. Then they took a second crack at me right after that with one of your lamps. When I was down for that minute, they went off on foot, and I've been chasing them nigh on an hour from now on the truck. They are fucking gone, man. I don't know how they could have slipped out like that. Okay, okay, but did you see Tracy, said Jorn. Did you see her at all? Jorn, hey, said Schaefer. I have her on the phone. She's been at a friend's house for the whole night, man. She's fine. She's okay. Jorn collapsed into a seat on his ass at the stoop of his front porch. He put his hands in his head and was trying to stop himself from shaking. Oh my god, fuck he said. He was relieved, and he had sobered up greatly in that short amount of time. It was a month out since the incident at his house, and Jorn had sent Jerry out into the South Utah desert to find the black church Jorn had been told about at the airport. After Jorn himself had done some combing through various online metal groups, he had found what he was looking for. Jorn told Jerry exactly where to find them, given that the directions of the middle of the desert were necessarily adequate. Jorn had given him a message to deliver on a piece of paper. Jerry wrapped it around a hunting arrow and shot it straight through their front door. After some back and forth through text messaging with a number left in the note, a meeting had been arranged. Just him, Jerry, and the five kids at a black burned out church in the middle of nowhere. When they finally arrived, however, something was different. You said there would be five of you, Jorn called out to them. Though it was near dusk, it was still hot and Jorn was sweating. You said there were five and I see two missing. I don't want any fucking tricks, do you hear me? He said from the truck. All three kids stood in front of the black and burned shell of an old small Mormon church and stared out at him. The whole scene could have been an album cover. No tricks, said the tallest kid. Just us. That's it, man. He was dressed in all black and had greasy blonde hair flowing in the wind. 
He couldn't have been more than 18 and had a scraggly little beard that looked like it had been growing since he was 12. Next to him was a kid he had seen at the airport, still covering up the top of his face with that ratty old hoodie like the last time. On the other side of the blonde guy was a bigger kid with a healing scar on the left side of his face. Jerry eyed this kid from behind the wheel of the truck. This was one of the two that busted up Jerry on the night of the break-in. What happened to the other one, said Yorn. Where are they? One of them split, said the blonde. And the other guy? We killed him. Sacrificed him for another resurrection. Blood in, blood out. Yes, said Yorn, fixing his sunglasses, trying not to roll his eyes at the severity of the situation. I'm sure you did. Look, I have an idea. Let's just get this shit over with, shall we? Yorn opened the truck door and got out. Jerry was about to follow, but Yorn motioned for him to stay. Jerry shot him a confused look and then slammed the door shut, still making sure to keep his hand on his gun, just in case. Yorn dug around in the back of the cab of the truck and fished out a small blue cooler, which he presented to the kids by its handle, then dropped it down into the dirt. That it, said the big kid. We need to see it. You will, said Yorn, but I have a new condition for our arrangement here. The kids looked confused and a little nervous, though they were trying to hide it as much as he was trying to hide how the heat had made him feel. They looked at each other and the blonde finally said, What? I want to see him, said Yorn. The kids stiffened. They didn't say anything at first. Come on, said Yorn. I didn't go through all this bullshit and come all this way out here to fuck around. I don't care how it happened, I'm not going to ask any questions, and I'm not going to say a fucking word about it when I'm done. I give you yours, you give me mine, and we're done. That's it. Let me see him. The kids looked at the blonde as he stared at Yorn. He swallowed. Fine, he said. You get a look and you tell no one. At least not yet. Whatever, said Yorn. One more thing. Just you come with me. The others, they stay out here. The inside of the church took him back to his old days in Oslo. There was graffiti and occult symbols everywhere. It smelled like piss and ashes and Jorn would have felt right at home here 20 years ago and if it were about 200 degrees cooler. He saw a big pentagram on the floor etched in the wood with jagged marks and decorated with all manner of satanic symbols and underneath his boot he noticed he was standing on a stain of blood. It was still red. Jorn moved so he wouldn't be standing in it and then looked around again. Where is it? He said. The blonde kid pointed to a dirty old refrigeration unit in the very back corner. Yord wouldn't have figured a place so far out like this would have electricity, but there it was. Maybe the kids had a generator. They certainly looked like they were taking a relative amount of care of themselves out here, despite appearances. Yord pointed to the blonde and told him to stay where he was at. The kid folded his hands in front of him and stood where he was, almost as if he were at a funeral. Yorn approached the refrigeration unit. There was a big red pentagram spray-painted on top and all manner of scrawling and scribbling along the sides, along with candle wax drippings and various ashes and burns. It looked like this was something of an altar at times. Yorn ran his fingers across the top and hesitated before he opened it, then looked inside. The cool air that had hit his face was welcome and refreshing. He stared for a moment and laughed, and then ended with a... Hmm. He dropped the lid and slammed it shut. 
He took another long breath and walked over to the blonde kid step by step, then put a hand on his shoulder. He leaned forward and socked the kid as hard as he could in the guts. The blonde kid's knees buckled and he fell to the floor with a sharp moan. He could hear the sounds of footsteps crunching in the dirt outside, and now the other two kids stood at the door. Before they could utter a what the fuck, Yorn looked at them, smiled, and said, You almost had me. You almost fucking had me. I gotta give it to you guys. That was some shit. It almost worked. I'm leaving now. Get out of my fucking way. The kids looked at him with confused looks on their faces. They parted when he walked towards them, almost cowering as he walked out. Jerry was out of the truck and almost to the door when he saw Yorn and said, What happened? Yorn walked past him with a stationary grin on his face and didn't respond. Then he got by the front of the truck, looked at Jerry, and said, There's nothing in there. Let's go. Fucking stupid shit. Like I said. He pointed at the kids still standing in the door of the church and said, Don't come near me again. Ever. Goodbye. We are leaving. Jerry ran back to the truck and started it. Jorn kicked the cooler over and got in the truck, slamming the door shut. Jerry peeled out and sped off into the dirt road while the kids ran inside to check on their friend. Jorn's fist was still tight. He replayed himself slugging that kid in the guts over and over and over again in his mind. If there was one thing he left with today, he told himself, it was that. Back in Moab, they had stopped at a diner to eat. Yorn hadn't spoken a word since he had got back in the truck, and Jerry knew enough not to ask. When the check came, Yorn threw two twenties on the table and walked outside. Jerry took a piss in the restroom and they were back out on the open road. It was night now and the heat was still lingering in the still air. They were about 30 minutes out on a long stretch of desert road when Yorn finally started to speak. I think, Yorn said, staring out the window. This is the last one. This is it. Make some money, buy a new house in Hawaii or whatever, and put the rest away for retirement. Then quietly fuck off for the rest of my life. I think I'm done. I really am. The band can go on without me, I don't care. The fans do, I don't give a shit. They've gotten enough, I think. More than enough, honestly. It's only fair. I know I'm not the only one who feels this way too. The other guys do too, I can just tell. In fact, if Kevin were still alive, I bet you he'd feel the same. Yorn's last words were cut off by the sound of tires screeching on the hot pavement. He flew forward and was caught by his seatbelt. He was about to swear at Jerry, but now saw what Jerry had stopped for. In the front of the truck stood a shirtless, gray-skinned man covered in tattoos. One was a large upside-down cross covering his heart. Long, matted, dirty black hair flowed in front of his face. The man walked towards the truck and put a grungy hand missing a ring finger on top of the hood, then pressed his dirty nails across the glossy metal to make an unnerving screeching sound all the way from Yorn's side to Jerry's. He then flopped his hand off the side of the truck and walked into the desert brush past the side of the road. The two of them watched him walk into the dark step by step, heartbeat by heartbeat, and disappear into the brush. Yorn clicked open his seatbelt, ran out of the truck, and into the road. He looked into the dark and saw nothing. A dirty, pungent death smell lingered in the air for a moment, and Yorn recognized it immediately. That was him. That was Kekavalt. Kevin from outside of Oslo. The very same. A cold feeling passed through him in a wave, and now it had finally felt like a real reunion. 
if only but for a few seconds, then was gone. You have been listening to Black Reunion Part 1, written and performed by myself, Nicholas Goris. Please let us know if you're enjoying the show by subscribing and following us on Instagram at No Exit with Nicholas Goris. You have been listening to No Exit with Nicholas Goris. Thank you, and good night.